0: The following podcast is a member of the Pokecasters Network. Pokecasters Network, supporting Pokemon content creators, their shows, and the community of Pokemon fans. To find out more, check out pokecastersnetwork.com or find us on Twitter and Facebook. Welcome to the PokePress Digest Podcast, a Pokemon news magazine show. Here you'll find some of the best content offered by our site. For more, visit us at pokepress.blogspot.com. This episode has two segments. In the first, I interview Veronica Wyatt, a percussionist who's done several covers of Pokemon music. Despite being relatively early in her career, we still had a lot to talk about, including how percussion is much more than just drums, how those instruments have been brought into the digital realm, and how she's revisited some of her earlier work. Our second segment is a discussion of the music of Pokémon Puzzle Challenge for the Game Boy Color. While most of this title is similar to its N64 counterpart, the music definitely isn't, and Anne from Big Podcast was happy to help me cover it. As usual, we have a game discussion after the outro. Thanks. Hi folks, Stephen here. I'm on the phone with Veronica Wyant, who is a percussion teacher, but uh, more directly relevant, she has been doing a number of Pokémon covers. We're going to talk about a couple in particular. Uh, She recently did a cover of the Duskull Graveyard theme from Pokémon Pinball, Ruby, and Sapphire for Halloween a a few weeks ago. Uh, But that's just one of the things we're going to talk about. But first of all, Veronica, where are you from and how did you get into doing music?
1: I'm from Spartanburg, South Carolina, and I actually got into music my father just retired as a band director. So when I was growing up, uh, like if we were cleaning the house, instead of just whatever's on the radio, we would have music such as 80s pop or jazz or classical or romantic era music playing in the background. So I grew up listening to a large variety of different types of genres of music.
0: And uh, what was your sort of formal training like? Did you take instrument lessons as a kid or how did that work out?
1: So I started, Dad and I would kind of play around at our piano in the living room. But then I did start band in fourth grade and I played percussion in band class through high school. And then in high school, I actually joined a class called Percussion Ensemble. So instead of sitting in the back of the band room every day, we all played on percussion ensemble, percussion instruments in percussion ensemble the whole time. So it was only percussionists in the class. So we got some specialized instruction, which is always kind of nice.
0: Yeah, it's always nice, though, when you can get that sort of specialized training there. What were sort of your main instruments? Because a lot of folks, they think percussion, oh, that's just drums. But it's actually a, a fairly wide array of instruments. What were some of your the ones you learned back then?
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. Because sometimes people just say, I need a drummer. Or you'll get piano players that can only play mallets. But I'm um, thankful But I get to play a lot of them, such as the marimba, the vibraphone, xylophone, bells, or block and spiel, which are all under mallet. And then I did some snare drum, some concert snare drum, and rudimental marching snare drum, and some bass drum and other auxiliary or the toy instruments like triangle or tambourine. And I also learned to play timpani and drum set.
0: That's a really great variety there. I think you mentioned a little bit about marching band there. Have you ever had to perform at sporting events? What's that like?
1: So my freshman year of high school, I was in the front ensemble and I played Marambo. And then I marched bass drum for one year and snare drum for two years. And now I actually work at that same high school. And now I teach for the front ensemble. So I actually get to work with my high school director now.
0: That is a neat little circle of life there, I suppose. Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about the Pokemon side. How'd you get introduced to that franchise?
1: So funny enough, I was actually obsessed with Bug's Life as a kid. And my parents couldn't get me to watch anything but Bugs Life. And then one day, they showed me the first Pokemon movie, and specifically the vacation special. And then I became obsessed with Pokemon, and that was followed by the whole movie, starting the cartoon or anime. And then I got a little bit into Pokemon Silver and Pokemon Red and Blue. But I mainly played a lot of the side games, such as Pokemon Stadium. Pokemon Stadium 2, I love the mini games. And Pokemon Snap is always dear to my heart.
0: Yeah, especially that first generation. Uh, They did really experiment with what they could do with the Pokemon franchise, and uh, the side games really do show that. Uh, We're hopefully seeing more of that now with uh, the new Pokemon stamp and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But uh, moving on, let's talk about your little YouTube channel that you created. Uh, How did that get started?
1: I started it back in college, my junior year, I believe, my third year of college. And I just started out kind of... Uh, messing around on the piano, figuring out what I could do and what I couldn't do, and then I would put that into a music writing software or a notation software. I use Finale. Some people use MuseScore or Sibelius, but Dad's had Finale, and so I just always learned Finale. And then I would export that when I finished it. I would export it as a MIDI file, M-I-D-I MIDI. It's an electronic sound font or so. And I would import that into GarageBand. And then I would mess around with the library samples to see what instruments those sounds sounded on the best. And then I would just upload those to YouTube. So it was all electronic based when I started. But last December, I got what's called a vibe cat. Vibe is in vibraphone and then K-A-T. And it's actually an electronic vibraphone that comes with a bunch of different sounds such as allophone, bells, and a bunch of other things that I've mentioned previously. And now, Instead of filling up a room with a bunch of different big profession instruments, I can just change the channel on this one vibe cat. So it's really useful for recording. And now I can perform in my studio and have it feel more like a live recording.
0: Yeah, yeah. One thing, if, if folks look at your more recent videos, you do that sort of split-screen thing where you're performing each part uh, of the uh, of the composition and stuff like that, so it's it's really interesting how that's evolved uh, over time.
1: Yeah, and I do want to point out one more thing, is that a lot of different percussion instruments, specifically mallets, use different mallets on the mallet instrument, such as the xylophone uses harder mallets, whereas marimbo, you use yarn mallets, just softer mallets, and so even though I'm performing on the same instrument, I still use the different mallets in each part. So you can tell the instruments apart on the screen, such as the top left or bottom right.
0: That'll be a great thing for folks to look for uh, the next time they watch one of your videos. That's pretty interesting. All right. Well, let's talk about one of your covers in particular. The one you put out at the end of October for Halloween was the Duskull graveyard theme from Pokemon, Pinball, Ruby, and Sapphire. Now, I do know that you had earlier done a cover of Lavender Town from Red and Blue, which is sort of the default Halloween thing that a lot of folks do. So aside from having done that already, what made you choose this one for, for this year's Halloween?
1: I've always loved the spin-off games, like I mentioned previously, with Pokemon Snap. And I was actually watching a live stream on YouTube of someone playing Pokemon Pinball, and that sort of gave me some inspiration, because I had been looking for something I was thinking maybe... Jack's theme from Animal Crossing, because I've done a bunch of Animal Crossing arrangements, but I just really love Pokemon Pinball, Ruby Sapphire. And when I heard the Disco Graveyard theme, I was like, oh, that's it. And you kind of get that feeling, and that, you're pulled into it. And then suddenly you lose a couple of days in the studio, and that's how that works.
0: Yeah, inspiration can often strike in a in a manner like that, where you just happen across something, and you realize it's exactly what you've been looking for, and it sounds like that's what happened there. Are there any particular parts of the cover that you wanted to uh, call out that were interesting or difficult or you learned something from?
1: Yeah, a couple of things come to mind. The first thing is, in the original version that's in the game, some of the instruments are actually a little bit out of time in the melody, like the, the clarinets are not with the bass part, the bass line per se. Uh, it's electronics, so it's a little hard to figure out what instrument it is sometimes in the older games, but... It's a little bit out of time, but in my arrangement, I still played it in time. And at first, I wasn't sure if that was going to work out or not, but in the end, it did. And I'm really glad that it did. I think it sounds better from a 2020 performance.
0: Yeah, it can be a little difficult sometimes to tell exactly what they, they meant there. Obviously, they were trying to have a little bit of fun. We're talking about, you know, a graveyard you know, in a Pokemon game, not Silent Hill. So it, it's going to be a <laughs> yeah. little bit different there. But yeah, it sounds like you did some experimentation there and took some risks, and it sounds like you're happy with the result, which is, you know, an important thing for musicians to do sometimes.
1: Yeah, one thing I'm really happy with is the part where the drum set comes in, because before it's just kind of spooky and ominous with the auxiliary instruments, the triangle, the tambourine, or not tambourine, the claves and the woodblock, and, and just the marimba and the bass marimba part and the saxophone on the melody, and you're like, oh, is that it? Is it over? And then the drum set comes in, and the melody doubles on vibraphone and bells, and it just kind of builds. And then towards the end, Marimbo changes the format, and it just becomes this epic ending of sorts. And I'm really happy with how it built up the entire time.
0: Yeah, yeah, you had a great experience, which, you know, given that making a video like that is a, is a lot of work, I'm glad you have uh, some positive emotions to show for it. All right, well, you did another uh, Pokémon cover recently. Do you want to talk a little bit about that one it's from X and Y?
1: So La City was actually the very first arrangement I did for my channel. And after graduating college and growing as both a musician and an arranger, there are some things I felt like I could do better, especially now that I have microphones and proper recording equipment and the VibeCat. Now I could do it for my main instrument, the ensemble, rather than just plugging it into GarageBand and figuring out what kind of worked the best that wasn't really what I wanted. Now I could really do what I wanted. So I upped the tempo a little bit. And I had some fun with that. I had a pretty challenging marimbo part. I had to practice those notes quite a bit. Um, But I'm really happy with how that turned out at the end. I had a nice blend with the bass marimbo and piano as well. I've gotten a lot better piano this year, too. So I was able to put all those things together. And I was really happy with that.
0: Absolutely. The more you practice, the better you get. That's true for pretty much anything. All right. Well, anything else you're planning on doing in the near future that you wanted to share with the audience?
1: I'm planning on doing Snowball City sometime in December or January to set the wintery theme. It's going to be kind of similar to LaDue City, um, but I'm going to have a lot more auxiliary instruments in this, and I'm really excited to show some of those off, for sure. And I'm probably going to do some Animal Crossing, too, maybe Turkey Day. Hopefully I can get that out on Thanksgiving. Um, and a couple others as well, that I'm really excited for.
0: Yeah, yeah, Animal Crossing, another big one on your channel there. So if folks are interested in that, great place to look. Speaking of which, why don't you go ahead, uh, what's your YouTube channel name? And also, why don't you tell us, do you have any social media accounts?
1: Yeah, you can find me on YouTube at v Media. That's V-Ron Media. Um, and if you go on my YouTube channel, you can find my social media and my banner, or you can look it up on site. So on Facebook, it's V-Ron Media or at v Media Music. At Twitter, it's at Media Music, And then if you want to follow me on Instagram, my personal account is V-L-W-E-Y-G-A-N-D-T. And it's mostly updates on my channel, along with pictures of my
0: cats. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you very much, Veronica. It's been great having you on.
1: Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: All right, folks. Thanks. Admittedly, Don't Say You Love Me doesn't have much relation to the plot of Pokemon the First Movie. At best, you could relate it to Brock, but perhaps that's better left unexplored. Anyway, this debut single from M2M was likely intended to serve as more of a bridge that would raise awareness about the band for the movie audience and the movie for the music audience. If nothing else, it probably generated buzz for the movie in M2M's native Norway. As for the song itself, the assertive tone does wind up being a good fit for the franchise, representing the stand-up-for-yourself theme of the series without sounding excessively angry. This tone carries into the music video, whose drive-and-fear setting gives it a more casual feel, and of course provides a convenient opportunity to work in scenes from the movie. Speaking of the movie, have you ever noticed that the names of the two featured Pokémon line up neatly with the name of the band? Nice bonus, I suppose, but it's obviously not the only reason they were selected. Anyway, do you have any thoughts about this song? Be sure to let us know. Thanks. Hi folks, Steven here. I'm on the phone with Anne from Pikuti Podcast, and this is going to be the next in our discussions of the side games in the Pokémon series, specifically the music of them. And at this point, we've gotten around to our first of really only two Generation 2 side games. This time around, we're going to be talking about Pokemon Puzzle Challenge for the Game Boy Color. Not to be confused, of course, a few months ago, and actually I just got that out on the podcast feed uh, when we recorded this live stream, uh, Pokemon Puzzle League, which was on the N64. This is a little bit of a different, uh, different beast altogether. So yeah, this is the portable counterpart, and we're going to sort of be comparing to those uh, those two games and stuff like that. So the structure of these, in case you're new to this series, is, is fairly straightforward. We're going to start with uh, sort of our experiences with the game initially, we're going to talk about the production details of the game, and then after that we pick out a few songs uh, and uh, go back and forth between me and Anne, and... After all of that, we sort of give our overall opinions, and then we usually do a bonus segment where we talk about the game itself. So that's sort of what you can expect with all of this. So as far as initial uh, impressions of this game, um, I'm fairly certain this game was released in, in 2000 in Japan and in the U.S. I got this, I believe, for Christmas of that year. And, uh, definitely played a fair bit of it. Uh, I think I had already played a fair bit of Pokemon Puzzle League. So I guess good on my mom for, uh, having gotten me both games. I think I got Puzzle League for, uh, my birthday, which is in September. So, uh, even though these games are very similar, I did manage to get both of them there. You know, this being the first gold and silver side game was kind of interesting coming about a month after those games came to the U.S. to sort of go through the game, the, the, uh, game in sort of, uh, puzzle form. Not sure I really have a ton of uh, you know specific memories uh, that we won't get to in later stuff, but that was sort of my initial impression. Uh, for this replay, this is available on the 3DS Virtual Console if you want to pick it up that way. If they ever add that to Nintendo Switch Online, uh, that'll probably be uh, uh, another way you can play it. But, Anne, what was sort of your experience back in the day? Did you play this back in 2000 slash 2001 when it originally came out?
2: I did not, no. Um, I don't think actually I or anyone in my circle actually had played it. It might be part of a discussion later. Um, It was very easy to mix this up with, say, um, Pokemon Puzzle League, the other uh, game. So playing this on the 3DS store for the first time was kind of an experience. It was a game that kind of seemed to fall through the cracks in my perception of it. Uh, And one that definitely got conflated with other games.
0: Yeah, it does kind of blur in with the rest of the series. To be honest, a lot of the uh, Puzzle League games are uh, very mechanically similar. They get a, a fresh coat of paint every couple years when they come out. Technically speaking, like the latest entry that was considered slightly new, well, there was some amiibo stuff in Animal Crossing on the 3DS that, that got some Puzzle League stuff, and then back in May, Nintendo added the original Panel de Pone not sure exactly how to say it, it's kind of French, but um, they added that to Nintendo Switch Online, uh, conveniently about a month after we did our Puzzle League discussion, that was back in April. So yeah, let's let's go into some of the production details of this game. Uh, it has a, a kind of an interesting history, which we I'll briefly go over sort of the, uh, the pre-Pokemon aspects of that. We did do that in our puzzle league discussion, but I'll try to go over these briefly. So, back in 95, there was a game released in Japan on the Super Famicom, basically the Japanese Super Nintendo called Panel de Pan. It featured uh, a bunch of fairy characters, and, uh, it's, it's mechanically very similar to the game you're gonna see here today. But um, a year later, it was brought to the West as Tetris Attack. It has nothing really to do with the Tetris series other than it's a puzzle game. And they replaced the fairy characters with characters from the Yoshi's Island series, or really the Yoshi's Island game that had come out the year before. So that was what you kind of wound up with there. You fast forward a few years to the N64 Game Boy Color generation and in 2000, you get these two games. You get Pokéon Puzzle League. Like I said, we talked about that a few months ago. And also you get Pokéon Puzzle Challenge, which... Now, unlike Puzzle League, which was released only in like the U.S. and Europe, not in Japan, this one was released worldwide. Let's see. According to my data, it was released in Japan in September of 2000. It was released in the U.S. in December of 2000, about a month or two after the Gold and Silver Games came out here. And then in Europe, it was released in, let's see, June of 2001, which is actually getting kind of late. I forget when the Game Boy Advance launched in uh, Europe. It was sometime after in the States, and that was sometime after in Japan. But you can kind of see this is a relatively late Game Boy Color game, especially in the in PAL territories. Apparently, um, these must have been in development with the N sixty four game at around the same time, but um, uh, they had some interesting name changes for this Game Boy Color version. I think one name it was listed under was Pokemon Attack, which at the time I, I think seemed to remember uh, joking. Uh, that, that was some sort of, uh, that you would expect that for a name of like a special on, uh, on TV. This was sort of before like animal interaction videos became uh, a staple of the internet because we didn't have video <laughs> streaming back when this came out. But it sounds like, you will win Pokemon Attack. It sounds something like that, to be honest. They, uh, eventually, uh, well, at one point it was also going to be called Pokemon Puzzle League, sort of to correspond with the uh, N64 game, and eventually it became Pokemon Puzzle Challenge. Um, In Japan, it it, it has the paneled upon uh, with Pokemon, sort of the the name of it there. So, yeah, sort of a, quite a history before it even uh, came out. Uh, Anne, did you have any uh, thoughts in that area?
2: Um, It's interesting to hear the history of this game, just because, as you say, it's one, where they basically just slap a new coat of paint on it rather than necessarily a giant development and it does uh, one of the criticisms i found of this game was it doesn't have a ton of connection to it being pokemon like it's got you know characters and images and like but other than that you know this could be could be for any franchise a person who has knows nothing about pokemon could still pick this up and not be lost and on one hand that's a great thing um but on the other hand it's something to consider like there's really not much specific to it being pokemon other than the packaging um so it's kind of interesting to hear the iterations it has through other franchises like tetris attack like yoshi and other other iterations this type of game has gotten and the little little tiny subtle ways it might be different
0: yeah that's it's it's got a maybe a bumpy ride is a way to sort of describe its history because it's gone from being a you know its own thing to a yoshi thing to pokemon thing and now it's it's kind of relatively unthemed so it's it's kind of weird i think you know the original i should point out I should point out that the like original fairy version, the main character's lip, which is where the lipstick item comes from in the Smash Brothers series. If you're wondering about that one, yeah, so very very punny item, but that's that is in fact where it comes from, and where some of the music is still held over. And and while we're talking about the original Panels Upon, um, you know, this game has like a beta Game Boy version of Panels Upon buried in it. If you use like an extremely elaborate button code. Uh, that you can look up. It's got a little bit of music in there and some assets in there and stuff like that. You can look all that stuff up because it's, it's kind of interesting that it's all buried within this cartridge somewhere. Uh, and I think you did maybe a little research on that. Uh, anything to say there?
2: Um, it's kind of interesting, like, I'm always afraid to do those kinds of things. I always worry it'll glitch and destroy my game because I'm an old lady who's afraid of technology. But it seems like there's a lot of really neat little things in there, like this there's cute little girl character, probably lip, I'm assuming. Um, and like there's art and there's um, it looks like there were maybe some gameplay things. There's a lot of stuff with Pikachu and uh, music, as we'll talk about later. So it's kind of fascinating how, I don't know, I guess how technology works that all that data is still in the game, even though it's not being used.
0: Yeah, so whenever we find buried stuff like that, and that won't be the last time we talk about it, always pretty interesting. Okay, well, let's talk about some of the musical people involved here. There's about uh, three or four different people listed in, in various forms of of music slash sound work in the end credits of this game. The big one is a woman by the name of Minako Hamano, who, to be honest, is kind of a, a legend in video game music. She's probably not quite as well known as, say, uh, Koji Kondo or Yoko Shimomura, but she's not that far behind within the, the gaming community or the, the game music community for uh, stature, to be honest. She's worked on a ton of stuff. Uh, she's most noted, I think, for working in the Metroid series. Uh, the first game in, in that series she worked on was Super Metroid and the Super Nintendo. Uh, a year before that, though, she actually worked on Link's Awakening for the, uh, the Game Boy. This is the original, you know, non-color version. Uh, since then, she's worked on other Metroid games. Uh, she has a credit in Galactic Pinball for the Virtual Boy which is kind of interesting. That was an intelligent systems game just like this one. And uh, also has a Metroid cameo in it. She's also credited for stuff like Brain Age and uh, the Donkey Kong Country Returns games. He worked uh, a lot on the, on the first Returns game and I guess a little bit on Tropical Freeze as well. So long history there, a lot of credits, very beloved. And... Uh, And I think you have a few things you wanted to add to that, because I think you did some research, and this is a very interesting uh, person, just to to be honest.
2: Yeah, um, I mean, I don't know, I have a ton to say, just that I was so surprised. Um, She was born in Kyoto in 1969, so she'd be 51 now, but I found like so much like outpouring of fan love for her, like there was a big online tribute to her for her 50th birthday even, which... You know, for some of the other people we've looked at through the course of this series, like I think it was just the last episode we recorded. it was like, "Oh, this person has the same name. Are they the same person? We're not sure. Um, she definitely has a lot of people who know and love her and follow her work and listening to her composition, they get a very distinct style too. and I found that just so fascinating that this um music composer and a woman, no less. Um, When so many of them are just kind of in a credit and no one ever talks about them, she has a lot of people who know a lot about her and care a lot about her.
0: It's it's not entirely surprising given the um, enthusiasm of the Metroid fan base. That that can get a little out of control, um, to be honest, sometimes. Uh, They can be very very picky and demanding, at least some of the more vocal ones. But yeah, uh, definitely check out her other work. Uh, Super Metroid and some of the other games in that series are some of my favorite games of all time. So really quite interesting to see her working on a, a Pokémon side game. It just sort of, I guess, came up in her queue. I did want to mention, though, that she does have a some sort of connection to uh, a pre-Pokémon Game Freak game. So this is called Mario and Wario. She is special thanked on that one. And maybe this is how she got into the Pokémon orbit, I'm not sure. But um, that's kind of interesting. But uh, let's talk about some of the other folks on here. Minako seems to be the the primary composer slash arranger for this game, but there are a number of other folks listed. There's Toshihiro Nishi, uh, who has worked on games such as uh, Metal Combat, which is a Super Scope game for the Super Nintendo, Captain Rainbow, and he's also created on Planet Puzzle League, which was the DS entry in this series. Let's see, Taishi Senda, who is credited on Paper Mario, another intelligent game series, and uh, Advanced Wars. Uh, he seems to have not worked for too long on this uh, in, in the gaming industry. He only seems to have like a few years of credits that go up through like the Game Boy Advance era. So I'm not sure if he's doing something else now or, or what. Let's see, I, the other name I found was uh, Kenichi Nishimaki. Who is also listed on, let's see, Battle Clash and Middle Combat. Battle Clash is sort of the first game in that series, and then Middle Combat is the second of those two Super Scope games. Let's see, Paper Mario, Fire Emblem, WarioWare. His credits seem to go up to at least 2010. He does have a credit on the uh, Origami King, the new Paper Mario game that just came out. So um, that's kind of there. Uh, and I kind of went through those three all in one shot. Did you have any thoughts on any of them?
2: Um. Not anything real specific. Like They're kind of in the same boat of many of people we've talked about where it's like we have their IMDb credits or or their video game credits. They have very common names so that when you research them, you spend a whole time researching about them only to find it's actually like some railway worker uh, or researcher in the case of Toshihiro Nishi. (laughs) Um, I also found another dude, uh, Takeshi Senda, who um, did some music programming work, it seems, not actually any composition, but some of the sound sound programmingy stuff. Um, and he, I didn't find a ton about him, but he also uh, served as like the director of photography or a photography assistant on The Power of Us. Uh, so as you said, it's very likely that, um, that some of them who only seem to have a few video game credits could still be working with Pokemon just in many other v- capacities as often happens in the creative world, like you do what people will pay you to do. So he could be serving, um, doing something that's maybe not as high profile as being a music or a sound designer, but he might still be involved somewhere.
0: Yeah, not 100% sure if that's confusing them with the other Senda on there. Um, You know, the Japanese name diversity is not quite what it is in in the U.S. being a, a more... You know, n- not to put Japan down too much, but the U.S. is obviously a, a more ethnically and uh, origin wise and more diverse country. So you see a little more variety and you can sort of pick out things maybe a little bit better. As far as the overall musical style, this being, you know, the first of really just two second generation side games, uh, not counting some of the obscure stuff like the Pokemon Mini, I suppose. Everything is kind of based on the gold and silver games. Uh, some of it is, is technically from Generation 1 stuff, but of course a lot of that stuff is also in gold and silver via various means within the game. So uh, as as far as how it compares to the original stuff, uh, a lot of these are going to be town themes from the gold and silver games. And uh, I do think though that the, the way they were transitioned here, they are swingier, maybe a little bit bouncier, stuff like that, and... Uh, Maybe a little more, I I hate to say fun, not that the original music was bad or anything, but it it sort of fills a different purpose, I think. And before we get into individual songs, did you have any thoughts on the music overall in this game?
2: Uh, Swingy is a good way to put it. Like, the word that came up in my notes a lot was multifaceted, which, like, I'll probably explain more as we talk about the actual tracks, but... Yeah, it definitely is fulfilling a different purpose and a very different vibe.
0: All right. Well, with that uh, being said, let's go ahead and go through our tracks. Uh, we The way this works is we usually try and go in the order that they would appear in the game and stuff like that. Although this, there's some linear aspects to this game, there's some less linear aspects, but we're going to start. I picked out this one. This is the menu theme of the game. So the the title screen. It isn't bad or anything. We we often do discuss that, but it's not maybe the most interesting thing. It it serves its purpose, and I I do suggest you uh, take a listen to that. But first thing I wanted to talk about was the menu theme, which is based quite obviously on the Pokemon Center theme from the from the main series games. If you compare it to the the main series game, though, it definitely has its own little style there. Definitely bouncy, maybe a little bit jazzy. I I try not to use that term too much because I'm not always sure if whatever I'm talking about qualifies there. But more energetic than the sort of more laid-back, peaceful version in the games. And then the, the B section... Well, it it sounds quite different, although it seems to have a little bit of the basis in the, you know, da 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 this one is much more ornate and uh and stuff like that. But the progression is is not completely dissimilar, but it does definitely sound quite distinct from there. So that those were kind of my observations of the main theme. It's sort of prodding you to to get uh, and, and go into one of the modes and actually actually play something is is it what I kind of figured there and did you have sort of a similar opinion or any other observations?
2: Very similar the word in my notes that I use a lot is it's peppy. I really like uh, this rendition on a classic theme. It's just something about it just takes a nice fresh look at it, which you know for the Pokemon Center theme has been used many times in many games. And it's one of the go-tos when people like to cover video game music. So like we've heard every rendition under the sun of this theme, and yet this managed to be something a little bit distinct and fresh. So in that sense, I really like it.
0: Yeah, we're, we're definitely not lacking for arrangements of the Pokemon Center theme over the years. They've definitely managed to do. Uh, quite a bit with it uh, in the main games and some of the side games and stuff like that, so we're not lacking in that regard, but this one does have kind of its own little thing to it, I guess you could say that. Alright, well, pretty much all the like town themes are represented in this game, and Anne, you've picked out the Azalea slash Blackthorn theme that's used in this game. Did you want to go into that? Why'd you pick it, and sort of what stood out to you from it?
2: Yeah, um, so this is Like, a really charming little track. Um, When I mentioned that Minako above, like, there was a lot of fan outpouring of love, um, one of the things that I kind of came across the most was, like, people were like, thank you for your beautiful music, your touching music, like, all the heart that went into it. And I kind of thought that was interesting. And when I was going through the tracks for this game, this is the first one where I was like, ah, I think I see what they're talking about like it's a it's a nice little theme on its own, but then the way she's adapted it to the style of video game music, but also like there's varied use of instrumentation, like the melody it comes through clear, but it switches instruments throughout um and there's lots of little flourishes and like little variations on the motif that are very charming, and uses of the different instruments in ways that seem a lot more layered and not complicated, but um, full than some other uh, games I've listened to uh, for this series. So I I don't know. I think if we're kind of looking for something that showcases what she brings technically to her style, I think this is a good track to look at.
0: No, I I definitely agree there. You know, it it does have the base, you know, it has that bass melody, which goes with the the cities involved, uh, but it's got some really good uh, chromaticism. I believe is the term where it'll go up and down and stuff like that in a in a very fun uh, slidey way or, or whatever. And, and I also agree that it does switch instruments there. So I I really enjoyed this take. It wasn't one of maybe my absolute favorites when I had three picks or so to go with, but. Definitely uh, a great little take on it. I, I would love to hear you know her have kind of done even more with it and stuff like that. Um, not, I don't have too much else to say about Anakima, unfortunately, just because I think Anne covered it pretty well. But uh, a very solid track for this. All right, well, let's talk about uh, my next one. This is another city theme. And it's the mahogany gym theme. So mahogany, if you may remember, is the one that's like across the bay uh, after you go past the Whirl Islands from Olivine City. So mahogany, one of the uh, sort of, uh, I don't know if it's a criticism or what, you may remember from another uh, interview I did about a year or two ago of the sort of the base game poker music is that uh, the tunes are are pretty linear and... uh, you know, it doesn't make them terrible or anything, but, uh, the Mahogany Town, I listened to the original one in addition to this, this arrangement here, I think kind of definitely fits in that care, that category. And, uh, the version here has a much more sort of, uh, out and about or around the town, maybe like a, a courier of some sort feel. And, you know, this is the fighting gym in this game, and it has a little bit of a training aspect to it as well, as if someone is maybe jogging around the town a little bit to, to work themselves up. Not sure if that was uh, Minako's intention there, but I, I think it does kind of work. And uh, it has, you know, a lot of, I would say, like, accent notes and stuff like that. And and just kind of a, a fun feel to it. Uh, Anne, what were your kind of observations?
2: Um, well, one of the things I noticed about this track was a lot more use of the lower range and lower notes and octaves than some of the other tracks. I was kind of more drawn to tracks that had a lot of higher notes and like piccolo-y type area and more high pitch stuff. But this was a track that I noticed like, oh, most of this is kind of in a more mid-range. So that I thought was very interesting. And it's nonetheless no less energetic for it. Um, But it definitely comes off with a different presence and sense than some of the other tracks, which, again, just kind of seems to highlight a a musical skill of, like, there's a lot of care taken into this composition. And, you know, not every track sounds the same and, like, good use of the whole scale and a whole symphony of instruments. And, yeah, I think it was an interesting contrast to some of the other tracks.
0: So I wanted to sort of uh, restate something there. I sort of suggested this might be uh, giving off a fighting type, or maybe she was trying to work some of of Chuck, the gym leader, uh, personality in there. Do you feel that maybe explains why it's a bit of a lower register thing or something like that? Uh, Just sort of throwing that out there, Anne.
2: I think it could. Like, definitely when you think of Chuck, you don't think super high-pitched and light you think lower and heavier and more grounded um both like in the sense of masculinity and just the fact that you know as a fighter you're very connected to the earth and your body and movement and i definitely think that this was an interesting choice like she could have gone um very high-pitched and frenetic and maybe that too would have fit a fighting genre but i think this was just a natural move it could be very very much she's challenging
0: channeling his character. Yeah, so definitely some stuff to ponder there in regards to this track. You wouldn't hire just any band to do a song based on The Legend from Pokemon 2000, as not many acts would have the talent to give it just the right balance of seriousness and humor. Thankfully, the B-52s were willing and able to provide their services for the soundtrack. Sure, the chosen one might not be as off the wall as Rock Lobster, but it does capture the sense of fun the band is known for, and with its surf-rock influence, it fits in nicely with the movie's tropical island setting. If you want to draw parallels to the characters of the movie, well, Fred's voice does remind me of the Island Elder, and Kate and Cindy could represent Melody, but it's more likely you would simply attribute it to a musical group performing during the festival. I suppose that's an idea if this movie ever gets a remake. In any case, do you think they made the right decision tapping this group for this song? Be sure to let us know. Thanks. All right, well, Anne, let's talk about the next one you picked out. It's called what? Here Comes the Elite Four? And uh, I I think I have a few ideas why you picked this one out. It's definitely a little bit different from a lot of the other stuff in the game. Uh, Why don't you go ahead and sort of describe how it sounds and why it struck you? Uh,
2: Yeah, so I picked this. uh, Here comes the Elite Four. It's Basically, what if the Elite Four were the shark from Jaws? Like, that's the vibe. Like, did you walk into a horror movie? It's kind of like, doo-doo, doo-doo, kind of that sort of spooky tension coming, unknown vibe, um, which kind of fits what's happening because you're kind of going through a tunnel and it's like you think you've um, achieved something, but no, there's more. So that's, it, it fits what it's meant to do. It's just, I I thought it was such an interesting choice to make it seem almost like straight up like a scary thing. Um, it really does sound like a track that would be at home in like, like a Luigi's Mansion type game where like something spooky is about to happen um, or something like danger threatening, not just, you know, my pride is on the line threatening. So yeah, I thought it was just such an interesting track compared to the light, happy, energetic tracks that came before it.
0: Yeah, the, uh, the words I put down for this one, spooky dungeon, uh, it definitely feels like you're going through not really a cave because it looks a little too well made for that. <laughs> uh, but sort of a, you know, it's definitely not the like Elite Four theme from the uh, games which they certainly could have based this on. They decided to go a little bit of a different route. Uh, I wanted to mention right about now that the uh, sort of visual appearance and structure of the uh, challenge mode, where you're going to hear this once you get, I think you have to get up on at least the medium difficulty for that to happen. Is, uh, much more similar to like the equivalent versus computer mode in Tetris Attack and Panel to Pond. You have this long, like, road you're going down. And, you know, once you get to this point, uh, you get to this sort of dark, damp cave type place. And, uh, that, that very much parallels what happens in the other ones where you go into sort of inside of this mountain or whatever. But yeah, it's maybe a little bit darker than what you would normally expect for Elite 4, but I think it does, in fact, kind of work. It isn't a super long song or anything, especially since you're supposed to go into those battles relatively quickly, but yeah, I, th- I think you're, you've got it about right, and I think you've pinned this one down pretty well. Uh, any other thoughts on this particular track?
2: <laughs> no. Um, just again, we've in the ones we've picked so far we've gotten some very different vibes so i'm loving the variety in this game
0: well in that case let's go ahead and go on to our our next set so the next ones that i picked out there's actually a little bit of unused music and uh, you know some of this unused music that you'll find here is technically part of that beta of pounds upon That's in there. Some of it is very clearly based on stuff from like Lips theme and maybe one or two other things. But it does seem like there is some unused music that was intended for the Pokemon version of this game. And, uh, unlike, say, when we covered something like this in the, uh, Pokemon Snap discussion, uh, from, I guess, last year. This is we we don't really know what this was supposed to be used for. In in, in Pokemon Snap, there's some uh, some ghostly type music that was intended for a stage that got scrapped from the game due to a kind of a presumably a lack of ghost type Pokemon to use in there. But in, in this particular case, we don't really have an idea. There's three tracks. Two of them are very frenetic and sound have some definite musical similarities. The third one is definitely much more of a calmer piece. First off, Anne, any, any thoughts about these songs, uh, like, tonally or melodically or stuff like that? Um.
2: Well, the first two, as you say, very frenetic. I find I don't like them. I mean, if they were just playing under your your puzzle game, I'm sure I wouldn't mind. But, like, I, I don't care for them myself. But the third track, like, I actually like it a lot. It's very charming. And as you say, much more calm a complete different from, you know, tracks one and two.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, I wouldn't consider those those two faster ones maybe the most interesting. They're not bad, though, in, in my mind. Uh, as far as what they were intended for, that's, that's a big question mark. Uh, there are a couple possibilities uh, I've read around a little bit, uh, some comments and stuff. No one really knows for sure. But I figure it's either some sort of early version track like something that was developed earlier and then replaced by another tune in there. Um, It could also be for uh, maybe a couple other things. Uh, You may notice when you go through the challenge mode, uh, once you get on the hard mode, you go all the way to Lance as the final boss there. Now, if this were making a full-on parallel to Pokémon Puzzle for the N64 on the two unlockable difficulties, I think there's like Super Hard and Intense or something like that, which are... Or, or very hard, They're similar to the two unlockable difficulties on the uh, N64 version, um, you unlike in the N64 version, you do not get uh, an additional fighter there, or an additional character to battle against. And there's been a little bit of speculation um, that I've read and, and gone through myself, and I, I think kind of maybe there are two possibilities. It could either be something involving the legendary beasts, or it could be something involving red. You know, not quite the same thing as Ash from the anime, but sort of parallel. Because, of course, in the in the post game of Gold and Silver events, you can find Red and defeat him. So, th- those are maybe two possibilities there. Uh, Anne, uh, do you have any thoughts in that area?
2: I think that's an interesting thought. Um, yeah, like the, it would be a good tie back to the Gold and Silver games, which this is based on. Um, and the fact that you don't have that one extra, you know, final bossy type thing um, lends a lot of credence to it that this could be battle music for a battle that didn't end up getting developed for tracks one and two. Definitely. I I don't know. For me, I, I definitely think track three might have been a, a credit sequence even just because it is so soft and calming and soothing. <laughs>
0: Well, what I thought is that maybe it could be something where uh, after you defeat whoever that that is, you hear that third song. Assuming all three of these are interrelated. The first two probably are. The third one, who knows? (laughs) But um, what you wind up with there is kind of a mystery. Uh, One possibility I wanted to mention... Well, actually, I wanted to, to sort of expand on, on both of those possibilities about the Legendary Beasts and about Red. So for Legendary Beasts, uh, there's not a specific theme for fighting them until you get to Crystal, which would have released in Japan around that time. Some folks, at least one or two folks I, I read, made some comparisons to the to the Crystal Battle theme uh, for the Legendary Beasts, but eh, I'm not so sure on that one. Uh, obviously, that would not be out until 2001 in the, in the West. The other, go, going back to Red, you know, it wasn't just the Pokemon Stadium games that used that nice little transfer pack, uh, to exchange data. Stuff like Mario Golf and one or two other games, uh, would exchange stuff so you could unlock things or add new characters, stuff like that. And considering these games were at least somewhat overlapping in their development, Maybe they considered, like, if you beat something in Pokémon Puzzle League for the N64, you can unlock the Red Battle in here, and this just never got developed, maybe in part because Pokémon Puzzle League for the N64 never came out in Japan, and they decided not to do that, or, you know, just didn't have time or something like that. Not sure what to what to say there, but uh, I kind of wanted to, to put those out as possibilities. Uh, and any thoughts on on either of those?
2: Um I think you're definitely onto something. As you say, we'll never we'll never know for sure until we find some of the people who worked on it to give up their secrets. But those are all very intriguing and and plausible ideas.
0: Yeah, I suppose it's you know the all the canto gym leaders are also in gold and silver so maybe there was at one point a thought that they would unlock through some mechanism uh going from since since Pokemon Puzzle League has all the Kanto gym leaders pretty much in it. You know, other than I guess uh, Janine Gary is is in the Puzzle League game as well. So uh interesting possibility there, but I just kind of wanted to throw that out. Now Anne, you stated that the third unused track might have been maybe a uh an early credits theme. Uh but one of the tracks you picked out is in fact the actual credits theme that was used in here. You know, that we often do talk about the credits theme, but I'm guessing there's something about this particular one that made you pick it out. Uh, what, what was that?
2: Yeah, um, this track, as I, as I say, it kind of has a similar vibe to the third unused track in that they're kind of going for a similar calming feel rather than a triumphant feel. So I, that's kind of why I thought they might have a connection in that way. But yeah, there's this... This, uh, the credit sequence, like you've got that beautiful image of Jasmine standing by the lighthouse with her hair blowing in the wind, and it's just this pretty and calming track. There's a joy to it. It has a great sense of mood, this song. Um, But the reason that like cemented it, that it had to be one of my choices was um, reading through the comments on websites and on YouTube when I was looking for music from this game to kind of listen to it in higher res. Like, so many people commented like, oh my gosh, this game was so hard, but then this song came on and, like, I I would just let my um, Game Boy play through this credit song and just listen to it because I liked the song so much. And, like, talking about their memories of playing the game um, and then their love of this song um, in a way that they weren't talking about on all the other tracks... Um it seemed to like just hit such an emotional chord with people. Um and I thought that was something very special.
0: Yeah, yeah, I can see why that would be the case. I mean the the unlockable difficulties especially for the challenge mode are are pretty brutal. I think I've only beaten intense once after like a zillion continues, especially towards the end of the game with the elite four and Lance. Uh, cause they can, it's a little different than the, the N64 one cause you can't really see exactly what's going on. You have sort of a little health meter. And, uh, you know, on the higher difficulties, they can really heal that up almost like practically to the top. So it, you have to do really consistently to, to whittle that down and, and knock out their Pokemon. So that, that can be quite difficult there. And I can see why this would absolutely be, uh, a, a, a relief there to, Hear this music, and then watch your your character. Uh, the it's, I believe it's the the male character from Gold and Silver running down the 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 path that you see for the first part of the the challenge mode. But um, some some musical aspects of it, uh, there are a lot of relatively long notes in there. There are also very some some short notes that sort of uh, mix in there, and and it's also got a, a sort of a minimal, especially at the start, and gets a little more intricate, and then sort of fades back to sort of the the minimal version, so uh, it definitely serves its purpose I think it it works pretty well here Um, I I did kind of find that the credits scroll by very slowly in this game, Um, so you get to hear a lot of this if you're watching the entire credits sequence, part of that is just because it does stuff like uh, reshow the title for each person in there, just about um and it shows like their their uh, kanji version of their name for the Japanese folks, I believe. So it, this this can go on for a while if you wait through the whole credits. I can see it being quite a relief, uh, especially on some of the more difficult modes. And did you have anything else to add to all of that, or?
2: Yeah, no, and I agree with you um, on like the aspects of the music composition itself. I think in this day and age, with like higher technological capabilities with sound cards and the like, like. There's a lot more appreciation for video game music and um, they, like when you can record a full orchestra and hear it at high def on some of these more recent games. And I think sometimes early video game developing music um, doesn't get that same sense of gravitas when it comes to their composition, just because it is so much more compressed and and so much a lot chiptunier and the sound quality is maybe not as great. But I think this game and Miss um, uh, Minako Hamano's, Ms. probably, um, her work here showcases that like there was a similar amount of effort. Like they were still that same attention to detail, that same knowledge of music theory, um, that same sense of orchestration. Like they were putting in just as much work. And I don't think they get as much credit, but this is a game that kind of highlights that you, they deserve it.
0: Yeah, yeah, this is definitely well composed. And as far as, you know, credit ga- going to video game music prior to sort of the last 15, 20 years when they started to be able to use, you know, pre-recorded sound and, and high fidelity samples and stuff like that. You know, I think there's, there's a more division here in the West, at least initially between the commercial music industry and the video game music industry than there was in Japan. So I think that that contributes to it. Also sort of the general, like, unavailability of a lot of video game music on streaming services and, like, makes it really hard to compare the stature of uh, those two things just to sort of go into that for a little bit. But this this Crash theme definitely fits, you know, what you've just been through, uh, whichever mode you're, you're getting it in. It, it sort of uh, fits uh, whatever accomplishment you've done. It, it sort of fits in right after that. Okay, so let's kind of talk about our overall impressions of the sound and music. since this doesn't have like voice acting, it's just all sound effects. Uh, not that those aren't important or anything, but uh, overall, I, I think this is a very nice uh, reimagining of a lot of the themes from gold and silver, and I think Monaco did a, a standout job, and part of me really wishes that she had been able to do more. I guess one structural thing I kind of wanted to mention as far as the music is that there are these, you know, when the blocks get towards the top, you run into this faster theme, Uh, but rather than having a variant for each song in the game, they have one for sort of each level. Like, all the regular gym leaders have a panic theme. All of the Elite Four have one. The Champion has one. There might be one or two more out there, but it's not a a one-to-one structure like we saw in most of Pokemon Puzzle League. Um, So, and... First of all, what are your thoughts about maybe that that structural thing I mentioned, but also the the music overall?
2: I don't know if I have much to say about the structural thing, just because by the time I got to a point where there would be a panic mode introduced, I was actually panicking, uh, so <laughs> music was not at the top of my list there. But as you say, like it's not, like it's definitely not presented in like the soundtrack track list as like this is the th- regular theme and this is the the hard mode theme or the um or the intenser version of it. So I, I definitely think it's got less of an emphasis in that respect. Um overall, um the whole point of this series is um uh, me looking at some of these um video games and the soundtracks in a way that I wouldn't normally while playing with that playing with them and um you know finding the little things that make them interesting that I maybe glossed over while I was playing the game itself. Um, This one made it very easy. Like there is music in this game that I would listen to just because I felt like it. That music that very much fits its purpose in the game music with lots of little interesting touches um, that are both subtle, but also um, bold in a way that I can express. There have been games where it's like, Oh, that's interesting, but I don't know how I would use words to express what I'm noticing here, whereas I don't know, I found this game it like it made it very easy to appreciate the music, basically, and I found that interesting as well.
0: I I certainly agree with that to a to a large extent. Uh, definitely a very good job in in translation and uh, and reworking these. Did some very impressive things. So definitely have to give uh, Monaco credit on that one. All right, well, we have a few more things to take care of here. First off, I have some feedback I wanted to go over. Some of this you might have seen if you've seen my previous live streams over the last month before we recorded this. So the first one of these is actually from SoundCloud. To be honest, usually what I get on SoundCloud is pretty much all, like, spam stuff from folks saying, Oh, promote your track, or... Or things like that, or submit it for consideration, because they're expecting this to be like a, a musical track and stuff like that, and they put some uh, lousy likes or comments on there from these automated bots or whatever. But no, I actually got a bona fide comment, and it comes from Zeddy Zaverick or uh, Maverick Yveltal, depending on which one you're looking at there. Uh, But this came in a couple weeks ago. Uh, This is on our Hoopa and the Clash of Ages discussion. This person says, Tweedia is in my top five favorite Pokemon ending themes of all time. Uh, I sort of replied to that. I said, yeah, it's got some great production values, and Rachel gives a great performance. And then I got a reply just a few days ago on that. Yeah, Uh, this person agrees. Uh, uh, And also this person put a shout out for Memories by Rola. So, yeah, a couple of Japanese ending themes right there. Um, Despite my usual overall preference for some of the Western Pokémon music when it comes to the anime, I I do appreciate a lot of the Japanese stuff. A lot of the the songs they do there show good effort and production value, and uh, from what little Japanese I know or that Anne can uh, elaborate on, uh, some good uh, writing, uh, lyrical writing as well. Anne, uh, do you have any thoughts on this particular comment up here?
2: Well, first of all, I I love your handle Maverick Yveltal. I love the image of a Yveltal going rogue. Yeah, Tweedia was such a charming song. I remember really loving the lyrics, and and as you say, great performance. And Memories by Rolla was also another good one. Like, yeah, like there was just a we got introduced to a lot of great music. I think, and and got to deep dive on some music that maybe. Didn't hit us so well the first time, but, you know, on Deeper Inspection, we got a better appreciation for it. There's so many great tracks, um, but definitely Tweedia was a good one.
0: Yep, agree there. All right, let's go on to the next comment. This is from YouTube. All right, so last month we recorded our Disputed Pokemon Songs uh, episode. So that was the one where it it isn't super adversarial, so don't expect me and Anne to get angry debating each other over whether things are or are not Pokemon songs. That's not what it was. But basically we took uh, about half a dozen songs, we went back and forth, and sort of debated to what degree are they associated slash related to the Pokemon franchise, talking about alternate versions, alternate uses, and stuff like that. So we got a comment from dddo 33 and uh, he says, he or she actually, uh, I always listen to the songs you guys talk about after the show. You should consider making playlists of the songs you talk about. Great chat. So uh, you may be wondering why this doesn't happen so often. So uh, I do try, especially back when uh, we were doing these uh, not live streamed and Anne and I were just talking and I would put these up on YouTube afterwards. I would try to make a playlist, if possible, that had uh the the songs in there. The kind of problem, especially on YouTube, is that uh since we're talking about licensed franchise music, that is a notable blind spot for getting things officially on services, whether that's YouTube or on to you know iTunes, Apple Music, Spotify, stuff like that. Uh doesn't have a great representation of uh the Pokemon franchise or a lot of other franchises uh that have associated well-known music, unfortunately. And as a result, I would often kind of... If I wanted to do that, I would have to put in uh sort of unofficial videos which are, you know, maybe not the most stable or could get... In other words, they could get taken down relatively easily and, you know, doing the maintenance on that not always the most fun, so... Uh, that's one of the reasons there. Uh, Anne, uh, I'm not sure that you would have a ton to say about this one. I did do this for a couple times. Like, I did this for the, uh, in excess discussion. And, uh, recently I was able to put Jordan Moore, a lot of his songs in a playlist followed by my interview with him. So that all came together. But, Anne, I'm not sure that you have a, a ton to say about this, but I wanted to give you a, a chance here if you can, just in case you do.
2: Well, yeah, obviously, there are many obstacles to having a playlist for this sort of thing, just because licensing issues alone, like some of the songs you can't find. But that is an interesting thought. Like, I i mean, I have a Spotify account. We could um, at least attempt maybe something like this to get all the songs we talk about in one place or at least a roving greatest hits or something of songs we've talked about in the past. I am willing to consider it. The execution, as Stephen says, not always as seamless as we'd like it to be, but it's definitely a great idea.
0: Yeah, just to give a little perspective on some of this stuff that's not on official services, like, you know, e- big English ones like We're a Miracle, The Power of One, you know, not officially on anything as far as like the original version, uh even like I think last year's Detective Pikachu, uh Carry On, of course, you can find the music video for that relatively easily. But if you're looking for, say, the electricity song uh from uh Honest Boys and the uh, and Little Uzi Vert, good luck with that. Uh <laughs> I don't think that's still not like available commercially, and I would totally pick that up for, you know, ninety-nine cents or whatever, but you know, it's in the end credits, and that's about all you're going to get, It, I think, for now. Maybe maybe internationally that's not quite the case, but, yeah, it, it, it is a problem. And that's one reason I, I tend not to make these playlists, because I don't want to spend a ton of time checking them every month or every week or whatever to make sure <laughs> the videos I have are still up there. I'd love to do this, but, yeah, that's a of the difficulty there. All right, one more comment from the same person but on a different video. So let's see. I guess this is uh, the Pokemon Go Community Day video from last month. This was the Beedrill uh, Weedle Community Day. Um, although this comment is a little bit newer. Uh, thank you, uh, DDD033, for going back and, and watching uh, some of the, the live stream videos. As we've seen today with all the lag we're having, it, it can be a little bit tricky to watch these, and some folks just prefer to wait for the nice polished podcast version. Uh, of our discussions, this one doesn't have a podcast thing, but in any event, the comment he put up there was, uh, I'll look forward to the music of New Pokemon Snap podcast, basically suggesting that once that game comes out at some point, Anna and I will do a discussion on the music of that game, and we probably will, although given the number of side games we have to get through, I'm not expecting <laughs> that before 2022 at the earliest, Uh, given we are going in chronological U.S. release order, we have uh, and we're just getting started with Gen 2, and Gen 2 is a small generation, but Gen 3, Gen 4, Gen 5, uh, especially once you start adding in all the mobile games that Pokemon has put out and all the the console side games and stuff like that, it's going to take us a little while to get uh, caught up, which is kind of the point. Uh, But, Anne, I'm sure that once we do eventually get to new Pokemon Snaps in maybe a couple years, if we uh, continue on this path. I'm sure you'll be you'll be glad to talk about that. We don't do the. Uh, I'm not planning on doing like uh, episodes like that when the new games come out, like we do for the movies. Maybe we should. I don't know. And any thoughts on any of that that I just uh, sort of spat out at you?
2: <laughs> um. Well, I I don't know. It would be cool to see you do at least a review or a let's play or something. But yeah, no, that. I'm a little excited, too. Um, look, curb your anticipation, hold on to it for uh, a couple years, and we'll get there eventually. Uh, it's going to be a good one, I'm sure.
0: In the meantime, of course, there is our episode we did. Uh, it's going a release of the podcast feed uh, earlier this year regarding the music of Pokemon Snap, the original game for the N64. Not sure what direction they're going to go, f- with the uh, the new game, since the stuff in the trailer may well be just stock music tracks rather than something from the final game. Um, But I am very interested in in seeing what they do there. Okay, well that was the last piece of feedback we had to go over, but if you want to give us a comment on this or anything else, you can always, uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, go ahead and give a comment on that. We always appreciate those. Otherwise, you can always drop me an email, pokepress at gmail.com, or drop me a comment on Twitter. I will try to work those in there. But uh, let's talk about what our next episode is going to be. I've sort of mentioned numerous times throughout this that there are not that many uh, Gen 2 side games. So if you haven't already guessed it, our next episode is going to be Pokémon Stadium 2. Now, just to clarify that a little bit, you may remember that in Japan they had a sort of a proto-Pokemon stadium that had a limited number of Pokemon. And then they had the Pokemon stadium that we here in the U.S. and I guess the rest of the West know as Pokemon Stadium. So when I say Pokemon Stadium 2, I mean the gold and silver version, which, to be honest, I have very little experience with. I've seen some the video of it and whatnot, but... I think I've actually done little or, or really no playing. I did pick up a copy used. It was not cheap uh, to, uh, to go through with that. But we'll be talking about the music of that. And uh, I talked with you a little bit about this before. I think you have not really played this game either. It's a very late N64 game. Uh, what are your kind of uh, thoughts going into this?
2: Um, well, I have played it a little, but not extensively. Kind of like just at anime conventions where they sometimes have a, a game room set up. I did manage to smash a few buttons for a few minutes with it. But um, as you say, it's it's not uh, the easiest game to find, um, not the cheapest, um, and not the most popular or kind of, you know, the, the one on everyone's list of everybody you must buy this game kind of a thing. So I don't hear a lot of people talking about it even. Um, so I'm interested in how this is going to go. Um, but I'm sure it'll be a great discussion just because it is not as talked about.
0: Well, with uh, that being said, I am looking forward to that. But until next time, Anne, thank you very much for being on here. Thank you. All right, folks, thanks. Thanks for listening to the PokePress Digest podcast. We'd appreciate if you rate or review us on your podcast app of choice. If you'd like to find more of our great content, visit our website at pokepress.blogspot.com. If you'd like to contact us, send an email to PokePress at gmail.com or follow at PokePress on Twitter. All right, well, now we get to the game discussion. Uh, Obviously, a lot of this is going to be comparisons to Pokemon Puzzle League for the N64. I have a lot of different things, I guess, to to compare there. I think one of the biggest differences I I mentioned in, in in the main thing there is that, is that the, the versus computer mode uh, works quite differently here. In the n 64 game, of course, you can see the computer's play field. You can see how tall they are and, and how much they're doing as far as like chains and combos and stuff like that. In this version, you get a little bit of an indication of what they're up to, but you get a, like a bar that shows, I guess it's ostensibly the HP of their Pokémon um, it's not really like designed to simulate how tall their stack is or anything like that. Um, so it's a little bit less, maybe a little less exciting for that. I don't know. And how did that kind of uh, affect your enjoyment, if at all, uh, compared to the M sixty four, where you could see the computer's field of play at all times?
2: Um, I'm kind of of two minds because on the one hand, it made it easier to not get distracted by like constantly looking over and thus losing focus on my own game. But at the same time, like there's a, a particular kind of tension and anxiousness that comes when it's like, I don't know what's going on over there. um, And it feels like, I mean, you're playing against a computer, but it kind of just highlights like, you you feel like you're playing alone, basically. And I mean, again, the computer was never an actual person, but it still like doesn't feel like you're, In a challenge when you kind of uh, have a bit of a wall there between what your opponent's doing. So I'm not a huge fan of it, but it has some, like, I can see why you might try this mechanic. It has some good points.
0: Well, basically, it's a limitation of the system. They, they didn't have the ability to you know, run the CPU to fully simulate the other side of it or show you like a mini version because of the resolution of the screen and stuff like that. I'm not sure oh, okay. if that's uh, fixed in some of the later portable versions like on the Game Boy Advance and the DS. So, uh, we're not sure about that one. But, um, yeah, it's definitely a limitation yeah. of it. And I honestly wanted to... Ask if it was a little more frustrating too, because on the higher difficulty levels, you can go through this case where, like, you get the health bar down really far, and then all of a sudden it pops, like, all the way back up to the top sometimes, because it, like, the Pokemon heals or something like that, uh, which is a, you know, a frustrating thing that can also happen in the main series games where they just, You know, if you get them to low health, we'll just pull out a a full restore or whatever. So I'm not sure if they were trying to emulate that, but it it, it can be a little frustrating. I I don't know what the highest difficulty level you played on there was. I don't know if you went above medium or hard on that one. Anne, any thoughts on what I just said there, though?
2: Um, I mean, definitely that is a frustrating thing, um... I learned from my experiences with Pokemon Puzzle Challenge or or Puzzle League. Uh, I stayed on easy most of the time. I did venture onto medium. I turned the speed level way down. I'm not good at these kinds of games. (laughs) But definitely, like, again, it's just like that extra level of tension and frustration when something like that happens when your opponent takes a giant leap forward and you have no idea why. And, And again, it's distracting from your own game to like look over and see what they're doing but like it's just an extra level of frustration like at least in the main series games you realize what they did was pull out a full restore it doesn't just happen so again not a huge fan of it but as you say it might be limitations of the system it is what it is
0: Yeah, so that's that's one of the main differences mechanically with, like, the N64 version is they had to make that concession. Obviously, if you have, like, a a Game Boy Color, you can link up with someone, and then you sort of get it, although they have a separate screen that you can't see there either. But I think, at least in that (laughs) case, it does keep a, a a true tally of how high their stack is or something like that. And, of course, you can see them when they land their chains and combos and send that over to you. Um, I don't think I ever really had a chance to to do that, but you, you can see some videos simulating that on, on YouTube and, and things of that nature. I did kind of want to point out, I, I think there may be a lot more mis- nostalgia, at least in the, in the West, for the N64 version, because when I did searches for this, you know, when I searched for Pokémon Puzzle Challenge, I did get a fair number of videos regarding Pokémon Puzzle League, but not the other way around. I think when I searched for Pokémon Puzzle League, I mostly saw Pokémon Puzzle League-type stuff in there. And there's a couple possible reasons for that. First of all, that may or may not be an accurate reflection. But I do wonder if people just have more fond memories playing Pokémon Puzzle League, in part because, you know, you could do that side-by-side side with someone else much more easily, since it was a two-player game on the N64. And maybe, you know, in some ways it might have a little more personality with the voice acting and the music from 2 Be Master, you know, which may be you know more commercial uh, than the stuff that's in in this game, which is perhaps a little more artistically appealing in certain ways. Not that there's bad artistry behind to be a master, but just because you know whatever. We'll, we'll talk more about the music comparison side by side in a little bit. But and do you feel like there's more nostalgia out there for the N sixty four version to go back? What I what I originally asked with this point.
2: Absolutely, yeah. I think there's a lot of factors that could be Um, part is because it was the N64, which was newer and like the Game Boy Color, I feel like was kind of starting to make way for other consoles. By that point, I might be kind of mess messing up my nostalgia at that in that way. But as you say, like, the N64 version um, had a bit more personality. Also, just the fact that it came first. And as I mentioned at the top of the episode, I had a long, hard time, like, figuring out what this move, this uh, game was different from um, Pokemon Puzzle League. Um, even as, like, the months before when we were talking about the episodes we were going to do going forward, I was like, wait, aren't they the same game? So I can see there being a lot of barriers preventing people from ever playing Pokemon Puzzle Challenge and even being able to make that comparison of which they like more, just because it's so easy to be like, oh, I've, I've played that game already, haven't I? Yes, I have. And not even realizing it's a completely different game. So definitely, I think Pokemon Puzzle League came away with all the warm goodwill.
0: There's probably some, some truth to that, yeah, it just, um, yeah, I, I definitely, like, at, at at shows and stuff like that, see more folks playing the, the Pokémon Puzzle League than the Pokémon Puzzle Challenge if they're both on display, and I think some of the stuff we mentioned, like it being two-player on the same system and stuff like that, gives the N64 one the advantage. Um, neither of these are, are necessarily the highest-selling side games ever or anything like that, so... But the fact that they kind of blurred together, being mechanically similar, and like, like to be honest, the music and some of the the graphical stuff, the the challenge, uh, Game Boy Color one being based off of Gold and Silver, those are really the two biggest differences between these two versions of otherwise very similar games. So, yeah, so that's that's certainly a, a bit of a thing there. And you know, it is interesting to speculate: were these sort of a victim of? sort of being too close together and not different enough. You know, you compare it to some of the other split games like Mario Golf, very different experience on the N64 with a uh, much more of a use of 3D graphics versus on the, on the Game Boy, which is a much more limited experience, versus these two games, which are, I think, mechanically much more similar. On the other hand, it may have also gone the other way around since these were released in the U.S. within a few months of each other. Where, you know, these are both on shelves at the same time. They look very similar. I don't know. Some people may have picked up the Game Boy Color one just because it w- would have been cheaper than the N64 one. That's true. Uh, do you think that might have made the, the Game Boy Color one look like a better value, Anne?
2: um For me, who did not own an N64 until basically my last year of high school. Well, no, no. We got one before then. But, yeah, like we didn't have it for a long time. We were late to that party. The definitely the Game Boy game for a portable console I already had, like that would be my first choice. I yeah, like you say, there's a lot of random factors that could affect how people perceive and remember both of these games. And again, just they came out so close. Their titles are basically the same. There's a lot working against both of them.
0: And, and kind of the other thing I wanted to mention is that, uh, speaking of things working against them, this was a pretty dense period of releases, because in September, you know, as far as the U.S. release schedule, you had this game, or you had the, the N64 game, sorry. And then in October, early November, uh, you had Gold and Silver for the Game Boy slash Game Boy Color. And, you know, not long after that, you had Hey You Pikachu, uh, And then about a month later, you had this. And, you know, we talk about how how dense the schedule can be these days with all the mobile games and stuff like that. But back then, you're talking about, you know, four different cartridge games, two on the N64 and and two on the Game Boy, maybe even three if you count both both gold and silver. So I wonder if that sort of is the point where Pokemon, you know, sort of cannibalizing itself a little bit. Uh, And do you have some thoughts there?
2: It's hard to say. That is definitely an area of Pokemon um, history that I'm, or or like just video game history in general, like the, the financial side of it and oversaturation of the market, I don't feel as qualified to talk about um, as a consumer who was in high school and therefore, like, my parents were not buying me these things, I definitely see the downsides uh, and remember some of those downsides of being like, okay, if I can only buy one Pokemon game and there's, like, five, you have to be very judicial about your choices. And when some of them look very similar and, and some of them don't, you know, look as appealing on the outset as others, like, you make your choice, whereas when they're spread out a bit more... It's a lot easier to make an investment, but yeah, as you say, like just a lot of very, a lot of factors going around um, the release of these games. And definitely, I feel like it, there got to be a point, I don't know if this uh, game would have released quite in the middle of that, where it felt like we were all just waiting for advanced Generation and those games to come out. Um, and everything that came with the new generation again i can't remember exactly where these games fall on that particular timeline but there there's a point in gold and silver um both in the anime and the game releases where it feels like you're just kind of there um it, it doesn't new releases don't feel as exciting
0: and you know maybe that was one of the reasons they released this uh the, these games is that they wanted to Give a little more variety to a generation that, like we said, only really has two side games
2: right? and and thus
0: not a lot of additional content. As far as advanced generation, if I remember correctly, those were released in 2002 in Japan and 2003 in the US and probably a little bit after that in the the PAL territories, Europe and Australia and stuff like that. So we were still a little ways. Obviously, I I have to assume that they were working on those, uh, at least by the end of when these actually released. They they had started work on on at least planning out Ruby and Sapphire for the Game Boy Advance. Uh, that system would released in two thousand one, so you you kind of get the the uh, idea there. But uh, I think the the one thing we really got to do here is let's sort of compare the music. We, we talked about it how the uh, the N sixty four one it's based on on, on dub music, uh, score elements from Pokemon the first movie. To be a master, a couple of uh, other score pieces. And also, the, uh, Pokemon World is in there as well. And, uh, a few other things versus this one, which is mostly, uh, somewhat, uh, original arrangements of stuff from Gold and Silver. So they give uh, very much a, a separation there between the, the two different pieces of content. Certainly, if you're anti, uh, against the four kids dub, you're not gonna like the music in, uh, Pokemon Puzzle League much, and you're gonna definitely prefer the stuff here. There are things I like about both of them. Uh, they have definite pluses and minuses. You know, obviously they had to sort of downport the, um, the stuff for the N64 because they couldn't use, you know, pre-recorded audio very much versus here in the, uh, this one where it's more of a lateral move because it's on the same hardware as the gold and silver games. Um, so sort of a, a different process was involved with both of them. You know, and and the dimensions, of course. The songs, for the most part, originally had lyrics that were used in the N sixty four game, even though they couldn't port those over. So I kind of have different feelings. Like I, I kind of want to want to lobby for the N sixty four one more, but I, I feel this is obviously the ones in this Game Boy Color one that are based on gold and silver are kind of the the safer choice in terms of, um, or maybe the more artistic choice. Which, like I said, I don't want to say that the the it, the four kids stuff is barely written on the contrary, but it's kind of more obvious commercialization there, I guess is a way to put it. And what are your sort of comparative thoughts here?
2: Um, it's an interesting comparison to make, um, because on the one hand you do have basically, um, new iterations of the 2 be a master soundtrack, which like as fun as Pokemon games are, I am in this fandom for the anime. I have invested in Ash's journey. So a game that really evokes the music that I associate with the anime, the those character relations and those feelings, obviously that's going to be a big huge draw to me. And there were some very interesting uh, rescores and instrumentations of it. Like I remember we were talking about um, some of the songs, like I never really cared about them much when they were on the 2 Be a Master soundtrack, but hearing them in, presented in this new way, I was like, oh, this is actually a really good song. And then on with this Pokemon Puzzle Challenge, you have a lot uh, more based on the Game Boy Games music. And honestly, I think the composition is superior for my sensibilities, but although music is hard to be very objective in that way, But both of these games evoke something in the player, which is what they were meant to do. It's hard to compare them. Definitely, I think, as you say, someone who doesn't love the dub probably is going to gravitate more toward one end. And again, someone with different life experiences is going to gravitate toward one game or the other. I think both of them are very similar in some ways in their musical styles and very different in others. So I think... There's definitely a lot where it's just going to come down to personal taste. It's hard to objectively say one is better. They're both better at doing different things and whatever the consumer values more is going to be their favorite, basically.
0: Yeah, I think some of it depends on mood and other stuff like that as to, to which <laughs> which of these they're going to prefer soundtrack-wise. Uh, there's definite charm and effort put into each of them. I will I will say that. So I, I, I'm not going to say either of them, is, the N64 one is bad or stuff like that. I mean, the N64 does have a bit of a disadvantage in that not that the s- sound hardware on the Game Boy Color is super advanced or anything, but the N64 takes a lot of work because there's not a dedicated sound chip and stuff like that, but we definitely got to do some fun comparisons here. I will absolutely uh, give it that, and I encourage folks to definitely check out both, both gameplay-wise and uh, music-wise if you get a chance. So, If that name doesn't sound too familiar, so let me describe that game just a little bit. It is a game where uh, a Mario character has a bucket placed on their head, uh, that they can't get off, and then you have to guide them along a path to get to the exit. Does that sound at all familiar to anyone out there? Well, it probably should because it's actually it's a Game Freak game, and it's referenced in Copycat's House. It's the game that's on uh, her like Super Nintendo or whatever. It was a Japanese only game. There was probably it seems some, uh, some some initiative to maybe get it released in the stage, but that never happened. But it is. Sort of a, her her first connection and one of the first things she's credited on. So I think I found a, a person with the same name as one of these folks who was in a like a rugby team or something like that somewhere. Uh, probably not the same person. Ooh.